Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. My name is Harriet Hendel. On a previous podcast, we met Kate Germond, Director of Centurion Ministries. Now, I'd like to turn to an Innocence Project very close to my heart, the Innocence Project of Florida, based in Tallahassee. This project was founded in 2003 by Sandy D'Alembert, who died in May of 2019. He was a lawyer, professor, former president of the American Bar Association, president of Florida State University from 1994 to 2003, dean of the College of Law at FSU and the recipient of many awards. Our staff includes nine people, two lawyers, Seth Miller, our executive director, and Krista Dolan, plus six to eight interns each semester from Florida State University in Tallahassee. On staff is a social worker. I'm very proud to say our project was the first in the nation to have a full-time social worker. We have exonerated 19 men since 2003, In the state of Florida, there have been 72 exonerations total and 29 from death row alone. Our mission is to screen and investigate cases of meritorious innocence to secure DNA testing when biological evidence exists, to advocate pro bono for the release and exoneration of individuals whose cases contain clear evidence of actual innocence, to provide support services to exonerees after their release, and to advocate for criminal justice reform to prevent wrongful conviction. Today, we have one of our staff members with us to tell us more about some of the workings of the project. Her name is Adina Thompson. Adina is our intake coordinator. She will tell us about her role at the Innocence Project of Florida. She graduated from the University of Florida in 2014 with a doctorate in criminology, law, and society. Her bachelor's and master's degree are from the University of Florida as well. Welcome, Adina, to the podcast. Hi, Harriet. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome indeed. Now, I have some questions for you so we can explore your role at the project and then uh, maybe span uh, fan out to some other possibilities, uh, maybe some of your uh, dealings with our exonerees, which is always uh, a fascinating job. Um, why did you choose to join the staff of the Innocence Project of Florida? Well, you know, in in 2010 or 2011, I was trying to decide what the topic of my master's thesis would be. And uh, an advisor suggested that I look into this issue of people who were being wrongfully convicted for things they didn't do. Uh, I was in Gainesville, Florida at the time. It just so happened that there was going to be a conference, a meeting of the Innocence Network, which is a a sort of loose union of many of the organizations that do do innocence work. There are uh, about 69 organizations in that union, both in the United States and abroad. And I was lucky enough that this conference 
was going to be happening just a few hours north of me. And so I went to the conference and I didn't know anyone. It had been my very first conference. And there at this conference were all the people that I'd read about in news articles and books and seen on TV, all of these innocent people who had been vindicated by innocence organizations. And I remember um, in the opening session, a gentleman who I didn't know, but know now to be Bill Dillon, one of Innocence Project of Florida's exonerees, got up at the front of the group and he put a CD on. And it was his song, he's a musician, mm. It was his song called Black Robes and Lawyers. Right. I know that song. Right. Oh, and Bill great. was singing. Bill was singing about what had happened to him. And I remember I had to walk out because it hurt my heart so much. And I spent all weekend learning about uh, the innocence movement and the ways that innocent people are found and freed. And then on the last morning, I was taking a break, sitting out in front of the conference room. And there was James Bain. James at the time was the longest serving exonerated person in the United States. He spent 35 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Uh, And unfortunately, he is no longer holds that um, very sad distinction. People have served longer than James now. But there was James. And I knew who he was. And I thought, this is my chance. This is my chance to talk to an exonerated person. And so I went over to him and I said, uh, Mr. Bain, you don't know me, but is it okay if I sit down and, and talk to you for a second? And uh, he said, yes, miss, it's okay. James is always unfailingly polite. And I just asked him, are you angry? And he waited for a second and didn't answer and then looked at me and he said, you know, I had 35 years to be angry. I'm not going to waste another second of my life on that. Mm-hmm. And that blew me away. Yeah. And I left that conference knowing that I needed to learn more about freeing innocent people. I went on to do my master's thesis, my doctoral dissertation on issues related to wrongful conviction. And shortly after I graduated, um, because of a connection that I had made at Innocence Network conferences, uh, the executive director of Innocence Project of Florida invited me to apply for the intake coordinator job. And it was the perfect fit. That was 2015 that I took this job. Uh, it's 2019. It'll be five years uh, that I'm here this January. Oh my, that's a, what an incredible story! And I I can absolutely relate to your being at the Innocence Network um, conference. Uh, I attended the first and only one uh, in 2015 and met um, some amazing people. That one happened to be in Orlando, so it was very, very easy to get there. I think there were 500 people there. When when did you say this conference was that you attended? The one when I met James, he had just gotten out, so it was, oh. uh, it was either the 2010 or 2011. I, I think it was 2010. Oh, I think uh, it was. And there I, were... I think it was 2009, because that's when I got involved, because I saw his picture in the paper that December of 09 that, so I know that's so it must have been, out. it must've been April of 10 then. Okay. Okay. And was there a huge crowd or, um, had it not actually picked up steam? I don't know when those conferences actually began the worldwide conferences. Do you? The difference between the hundreds upon hundreds of people that attend an innocence network conference now and the small group of us that were able to have oh. dinner in a little atrium in a hotel is vast. 
we oh held my. wow we held this conference in atlanta again uh this past year mm-hmm. and the innocence network had outgrown the original conference hotel wow that's wonderful it, it was it was amazing to sit one night at dinner and i believe there were 125 exonerees and they came up one by one they circled the room i will never forget that and told their story very briefly because there were so many and everyone needed a chance to get up to the microphone so what a beginning for you uh, i i certainly understand how you ended up at the innocence project of florida so now that you've been um an intake coordinator for, as you say, nearly five years. Explain the workings of your job and whether it is um, a job that keeps you in Tallahassee or whether you move around a great deal to do your job. Well, the interesting thing about this job is that it but the people come to us, you know, we don't, we don't advertise, we don't have to do outreach. There are so many people in Florida's prisons who are desperate for someone to hear them. So my job actually starts with uh, the U.S. Postal Service. We get mail from Florida prisons every single day. We probably get 12 to 15 letters every day from people asking us to review their cases. So primarily, my job is uh, it's a desk job. I have an office uh, in our Tallahassee office in um, a lovely little yellow house in a historic home in Tallahassee, and I have walls of case piles. Some of our cases are 30 or 40 years old, so I have got files with onion skin cages. These Mm. are people for whom nobody has responded for years and years and years. So my job starts with that initial request for help. Um, We have a staff in intake of two professionals who work here full-time and a number of interns. And as a department, we take these initial letters and we review and review through questionnaires, through reviewing case documents, through uh, analyses and memo writing, and figure out from those applicants who we may be able to help. And the way that we figure that out is we look at cases, and as you said in your intro, we figure out if there is some physical evidence that we can test for DNA that may shed light on who the true perpetrator may be. Uh, In approximately 2015, when I started here, the project also started looking at non-DNA means of exoneration. In fact, most exonerations in the United States have about 80% have been achieved through means other than DNA. So a lot of my job is looking for other ways to get someone freed. Is there a witness who changed the story? Is there a perpetrator who came forward and told the truth? Is there some kind of um, method that was used prior that is no longer met, uh, a method that we use? Uh, for example, uh, hair comparison analysis is no longer considered a valid science. And so mm-hmm. we pull cases where hairs were compared and a hair was attributed to uh, the defendant asking us for help, and we give those cases special consideration. So it's really a lot of review and a lot of a lot of looking for things that have never been uncovered before. And you say you have an office, so you rarely go out to visit 
someone who has asked you for help? Is that accurate? The person who does most of the visiting is Mm -hmm. our investigator, Jenny Nepstad. Her whole job is to find witnesses and interview them, to talk to uh, clients who've asked us for help. And a lot of visits are also conducted by Anthony Scott, Mm -hmm. a social worker who works closely with clients before they're released and after, and of course the attorneys, uh, Seth Miller and Kristen Dolan. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my job is to collect all of that information that we would need before we ever decided to do a visit. I see. And and do you have an input into the cases that are accepted at the project? Um, Does your voice, you know, count uh, in, in making that decision? The voices of all of the members of our legal team contribute to the decision um, of whether to accept a case for litigation or not. Um, when a case has been fully reviewed in the intake office, and when a, uh, a student, a legal intern, who's going to be a second or third year law student, has reviewed that file in its entirety and drafted a case memo, the legal team, the attorneys and the intake department and the investigator, all meet together and review that memo and discuss the possible legal angles for getting that defendant back into court. And so those decisions are made by the entire legal staff. And the beauty of that is that you have multiple opinions in the same room, but also um, nobody has the burden of making a decision alone because these are people's lives. Right, right. And, And it's a tremendous decision, I would think, to accept or reject a case. How how often does a rejection happen after you have done your job as intake coordinator? What is it that you would, what factors um, would there be for you to decide, I don't think so, we're not going to take this case? You know, the analysis is actually a little bit different than that. The analysis is more about what who can we help, not who we can't help. And so what we do is we review until we find someone for whom there is a legal avenue for relief and a claim of innocence that we can put faith in. And so a lot of what I do is trying to separate out the meritorious cases. And we have a number of stages in the intake process. And so a case might, uh, might be ineligible for consideration after the first letter or a case might make it all the way to legal team. And what we're doing is we're trying to find out if there is something that we can use to get back into court. Florida has um, test strict rules about how to bring up issues in a case that's been closed. And so what we really uh, need to do is have something concrete to bring before the court. And truly the, the hardest part of my job and the most painful part is when I believe that an applicant is innocent, but there is no legal way to help that person. That's really the most heartbreaking part. And I'd like you to maybe expand on that statement that you just made. What Can you possibly give us an example of that? Sure. We had, we had a client um, who we really wanted to achieve DNA testing for. Uh, it was a great case. It was an old um, sexual assault from the 1980s, and we, we believed in our client's innocence. Uh, we applied 
Uh, we filed a motion for post-conviction DNA testing. In Florida, that's called a 3.853 motion. The court granted the testing and ordered all of the custodians of evidence to submit their evidence to a laboratory for testing. Uh, unfortunately, none of the evidence in this case could be found. It seemed that prior to the rules about evidence retention that were created in Florida, evidence in old cases was routinely destroyed. And so although we believed in our client's innocence, and although the court had granted DNA testing, there was simply no longer anything to test. Oh, my goodness. Um, that, that is such a key point. Um, and I, when I speak about the Innocence Project of Florida, um, people are aghast when they hear that evidence has been thrown out or destroyed after someone goes to prison for the crime uh, and is supposedly guilty. Is there um, any um, uniform uh, guideline that applies to all states about how long evidence is kept after a trial is over? So that's an area for, for state law. So it's going to vary oh. from state to state. But in Florida, there are evidence retention rules. And now these kinds of evidence, things that could potentially be tested for biological material, are now routinely kept as per mm. the law. But in the 1970s, 1980s, even um, about halfway through the 1990s, DNA testing was not routinely conducted. And truly, in years past, we didn't know either about DNA itself or about the application in criminal proceedings. And so really, evidence destruction decades and decades ago had to do more with our ignorance. And I now see. the laws have changed such that if a person is going to go to prison for life, if a mm -hmm. person is going to be sentenced to death, because unfortunately Florida is a death penalty state, yes. there yes. are rules that require that that evidence be taken. I see. And there have been many people in Florida, as well as the nation, taken off death row. I think the number nationwide is over 160. So what does that tell us? It tell, uh, tells us that there are people waiting to be executed who are innocent. Uh, and it's very, very frightening, especially when you talk about evidence being destroyed. So that, that has certainly changed. Remarkable with Jamie Bain's case, the man you mentioned earlier who spent 35 years behind bars, his um, actual evidence was kept. Uh, I truly don't understand why uh, that was a stroke of luck for him. And I often wonder if the evidence is, um, the evidence is destroyed and, and that's all there is, then there's not much more you can do. And I, that's what you were saying before. So is, is it mostly evidence or witnesses that have died? What other things would cause you to say to someone, I, I just, we just don't have any options open to us? Well, the Florida law uh, in post-conviction is fairly specific. Um, the law that governs our ability to file claims in Florida courts after a person has been convicted of a crime is governed by uh, Florida Rule 3.850. And under that rule, a person can, for two years, bring claims of ineffective assistance of counsel, mm -hmm. claims of newly discovered evidence, Brady or Giglio violations. 
um, in these older cases, this timeline has expired. And so we start the clock, or rather the state of Florida starts the clock as soon as a person's case has been rejected by the appellate court. So a person is convicted of a crime, the person is sentenced, and then the person may appeal his or her conviction to the appellate court. As soon as the appellate court affirms that conviction, that starts running a two-year clock to file this 3.850 motion for post-conviction relief. And so in a really old case, absent new physical evidence analysis, we don't have an opportunity to bring claims under 3.850 unless and until there is something newly discovered. Mm-hmm. I see. It's it's very, very complicated. Um, just, you know, uh, the taking of a case, especially a very old case, uh, where do you begin? I mean, when, when I think of Jamie, I know in eight months he was out uh, thanks to Innocence Project of Florida, but that was that was the exception rather than the rule. Wouldn't that Absolutely. be true? Yeah, that was Absolutely. quite remarkable. <laughs> um, all right. I, um, you had mentioned to me when we spoke um, that you had a prison visit um, and you wanted to say something about that. Um, would oh, you like to share that? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. So one of the things um, about Innocence Project of Florida is we're a nonprofit organization. We, um, we're not a huge staff. When I started here, there were a lot fewer people working here. And so we had an all-hands-on-deck mentality. Uh, I'd been here three or four months. It was uh, mid-2015. And the project had a five-day hearing down in the Tampa area. So we were all going to court. Um, but in the meantime a client needed a visit. We had some paperwork that a client had to fill out and somebody was going to have to go to this prison. Uh, And it turned out it was going to be me because simply nobody else was available. Uh, The only time I had ever been to a prison before this was on a school trip. (laughs) When I was in school, an undergraduate, they took me to Florida State Prison and showed me around. I was with a group of people. I'd never been to a prison. I'd never been to a jail apart from that. (laughs) And so when the project told me I was going to make this visit. I was, I was nervous. And I showed up at Sumter Correctional Institution uh, and walked through a metal detector and showed them my ID. And they led me to, the guards did, they led me to this little room right off the prison yard. And they said, well, go get your client. And uh, I didn't know what to expect or who to expect. But as I sat there with my little body alarm that they'd given me to press in case of an emergency, I waited and they brought in this really huge man. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh man, this is all right. And I smiled and I shook his hand and he sat down and we had the most beautiful conversation. Mm -hmm. He told me about the history behind some of his tattoos. He told me some stories about animals that he'd had, pets he'd had. And we took care of the paperwork too, but we had a really wonderful visit. And I always had a special place in my heart for that client in that visit because it was my first and because he was so kind to me. Mm-hmm. And well, in, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were finished. Go ahead. In January of 2018, I got to see that man, Dean McKee, right. walk out of a county jail on an appellate bond. And then later on, several months later, I got to be present when Dean McKee was exonerated. 
The man that I visited in prison, Dean McKee, was exonerated and now owns his own business in the Tampa, Florida area. So to see somebody go from Mm -hmm. being wearing handcuffs and prison blues to being a person who has his own business, a beautiful home, spouse, beautiful, wonderful animals that he loves, was just such a pleasure for me. And I will never forget that visit. And to this day, Dean is uh, has a special place in my heart. I can understand that. And Dean spent 30 years behind bars for a crime that he did not commit as a teenager. I think he was 16. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Dean went to prison for life at 16. Yeah. And uh, through Innocence Project of Florida, we are able to see Dean thrive. In fact, yeah. last time I saw him, he gave me a business card for his tattoo studio that he's running. <laughs> Uh, he's a beautiful artist, and uh, I carry that card around with me as a bookmark. So whatever I'm reading, there's his card reminding me of how important the work is. Oh, it, it is. It's so very important. And I, I so often say to people, what price, even though we work free of charge pro bono, what price can you put on freedom? Uh, I don't think there is one. I think it's priceless. So that that was a wonderful story that you told. And in the few minutes we have remaining, I know you have been at the legislature um, recently. Um, what were you? What were you? What was your role uh, at the Capitol? What was going on there? Uh, something that we're very excited about. Uh, Along with the Innocence Project in New York and exoneree uh, Nathan Myers, we were at the Capitol talking to legislators about making a change to the law that compensates exonerees for the time they spent in prison. Presently, if a person has a conviction in addition to the wrongful conviction, that person becomes ineligible for compensation. And so Mr. Myers was with us because he and his uncle were exonerated together. They each spent 43 years in prison for a murder they did not commit. And through the help of the Duval County Conviction Review Unit and the Innocence Project of Florida and Holland and Knight, both were exonerated. Now, uh, Nate went to prison when he was 18 years old. He has no prior record. He is eligible for compensation. His uncle went to prison when he was 34, and he had some previous convictions in the 1960s and then spent the same amount of time, 43 years in prison as Nate did. But his uncle Clifford Williams is not eligible for compensation. And so we were here talking to the legislature about making a change to the compensation law that would allow innocent people to receive monetary compensation compensation for what has happened to them. I see. And when, does the legislature vote on this um, change in the compensation law? Well, it's a process. So uh, right now the, um, the bill is in drafting. And what will happen next is that we'll make the rounds to the relevant committees in the House and the Senate. And what we hope for is that uh, the changes that we want, that we advocate for, that Nathan Myers has advocated for, will make it out of committee in the Florida House and the Florida Senate, and we'll make it onto the floor for discussion. So there are some hurdles to cross, Phil, yes, but we are optimistic and look forward to testifying on behalf of the bill. That is great. Speaking of um, 
Nathan Myers. Uh, I will be interviewing him and the head of the conviction review unit, uh, the new one, and also uh, one of our lawyers for my next set of podcasts. So you kind of, <laughs> good segue into that, Adina. Well, okay. thank you, thank you so much. Um, you've really opened our listeners' eyes into just a, a small window into one of the jobs uh, that uh, is goes on in the office in Tallahassee. And in time, I'd like to speak to uh, all the people in the office so they can tell us what they do to help um, people who have been wrongly convicted and incarcerated. Thank you it's again for your pleasure. time. Thank you so much. And hope we will have our listeners come back and uh, hear, join us again at Pursuing Justice. Thank you very much.